Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Pete, and uh, I'm glad that you're with us. We are um, on the third Sunday after Epiphany, and during these Sundays, between Epiphany and Lent, we're spending time in the gospel readings from the Revised Common Lectionary, which are primarily from the Gospel of Luke with a little bit of John mixed in. And so today we'll be in Luke 4... 14, the passage that Pat just read for us. And um, I want to start this morning by giving us a little bit of context, because to really understand what's going on in Luke 4, we need to understand where this story fits within the larger story that's told in Scripture. So we're going to take a little journey from Genesis to Revelation. I promise it won't take as long as it should, but... uh, There's a lot that we need to cover here. And so the larger story, of course, begins in Genesis, the book of beginnings. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are set up as this vision of how God intended the world to be when he created it. And I specifically want to focus in on after he has created all that he has created, Um, what happens next. And so in Genesis 1, starting in verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God, by, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And so in this book of beginnings, we see these paradigms that are introduced that are meant to be normative in this new good world that God has created. And so the rhythm that's introduced in the very beginning is that God creates or works for these six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests. He settles into his creation. He enjoys the goodness of it. So the rhythm is six on, one off. Six on, one off. And he fills the creation with his presence. And humans are there kind of as the royal priesthood in this holy temple that is this garden, this beautiful Edenic uh, paradise. And there's man, and there's woman, and there's plants, and there's animals, and the sun never goes out on the seventh day. And so that's the idea that this whole first page of your Bible is working towards. That's the ideal. And then, as we know, um, there's a, a, a drastic turn in the story that comes shortly afterwards. Humanity, rather than living according to God's ways in God's place, They choose to do things their own way, and as a result, they find themselves exiled from Eden, and eventually they find themselves uh, living as slaves in the land of Egypt, doing harsh labor that's grinding them back into the dust. 
And so God has this redemption plan that's been in the works for a little while. He calls this man by the name of Abram and says that he's going to create a family, the family of Israel, the Hebrew people, and that through this family, he's going to restore things back to the way they were supposed to be. That this seventh day rest, this Eden blessing that was supposed to be the human experience, he's going to use this family to bring about the return of this Sabbath. And so that family ends up as slaves in Egypt, and God sends Moses, of course, to set them free and lead them into the promised land. Now, as they've been living as slaves for the last 400 years, as a gracious gift, God gives his people the law. It's a set of laws that says, here's how to live well. Here's how to live as free people. Here's how to live in a way of abundance and harmony and community in peace with each other, with me, with the land. Um, This is what it looks like. And so God gives the law. And part of that law we recognize as the Ten Commandments, which includes a commandment to keep the Sabbath. So you'll recognize this from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what you see here is not just God giving a bunch of rules for his people to follow, but God giving a gift of here's what it looks like to live as my people in my world according to my ways. And this rhythm of six and one, six and one that was built into the fabric of the creation is now being renewed, restored the way it was always supposed to be. And so God says, every seventh day, take a day of rest. Now, when you think of the idea of Sabbath, the idea of taking a day of rest, it's not just about taking a day off from work. Most of us get one or two days off from work each day. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, Eugene Peterson says that a day off is a bastard Sabbath. Think of, think of the idea of Sabbath rest as the idea of being restored the idea of being refilled, reoriented, reset. So when we take a Sabbath rest, our batteries are recharged. We're reset to our factory settings in Eden, back to the way we're supposed to be. And so God gives his people this law as a gift to teach them how to live well. And at the same time as he gives them the law, he gives them a calendar. And just like the law, the calendar was designed to help his people be a holy people, a peculiar people, if you will, a people who are chosen by God for a specific mission in the world to live closely with him, to enjoy him, and to spread his glory throughout the nations. And so God gives his people a law, and then he gives them a calendar to order their lives by. And in this calendar, you have, as we've already said, weekly Sabbaths, and you have annual festivals or feasts, and then you have this idea of every seven years, there's a sabbatical year. 
the idea that kind of a macro Sabbath, that after seven or after six years, this seventh year would be a year of rest. And then he takes it out even further in this calendar, and every seven times seven years, you have the ultimate celebration of Sabbath rest, and it's called the year of Jubilee. So this is in Leviticus 25, as God gives his people this sacred calendar. He says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of, he does the math for us, which is nice, 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your, return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields, and in this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. Okay? And so this is the, in this sacred calendar that God gives his people the ultimate expression of this rhythm of six and one, six and one. It starts with days, then it goes to weeks, then it goes to years, and then it goes to sets of years. So every Seven times seven years, the 50 year, 50th year is to be this year of Jubilee. Now, Jubilee is a word we kind of throw around. Deschutes hijacks it every winter for their winter ale. And um, it's, it comes from the Hebrew word yobel, yobel, which literally means a ram's horn. So when I was in Israel a few years ago, I picked up this ram's horn or shofar. And this is a really small one. Um, they have them that are several feet long from these bighorn sheep. But this uh, literally is the yobel. And you understand from the context in Leviticus 25 that when the ram's horn is blasted, that that signifies that the year of Jubilee is here. I'm pretty bad at it. Do you want to hear me try, though? <laughs> I mean, there's no, like, reed or mouthpiece or anything. It's literally just from a dead sheep. Um, you can probably mute my mic real quick, Josh, if you want. <laughs> we'll see what happens here. <laughs> Hold on. I can do better than that. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Um, that's the idea. It, theirs was a little more beautiful than that. Um, but the point is, when you hear this sound, when the ram's horn blasts, Jubilee is here. Now, um, this is a big deal. If you didn't catch it in the text of Leviticus, this is one of the Bible's most radical ideas. This is a crazy economic policy that God puts forth. Every 50 years on the year of Jubilee, here's what happens. Three things. All debts are canceled, all slaves are released, and all properties are restored. This isn't metaphorical, spiritual, symbol, symbolic. This is in the world that we live in. 
every 50 years on the Jubilee, whatever debts you have, your credit card debt, your student debt, your mortgage, whatever, it's all canceled. Uh, whatever contracts you're under, slaves or indentured servants, whatever contracts you're under, back to scratch. And all properties are restored. So the idea is that when Israel was first given the promised land, each family or each clan got an equal share. They each had their property. And property, of course, was huge when you didn't have savings accounts and hedge funds and banks and all that kind of stuff. Your property was your wealth. And of course, over 50 years, there's buying and trading and selling. People get themselves in bad situations. They have to move. They have to sell off their land. And every 50 years, all properties are restored. This is a crazy, radical idea. Because a lot happens within 50 years, right? A lot of buying and selling and building and expanding. Battles are fought. Some people come out ahead. Other people are left behind. There's winners and losers, economically speaking. Some people are on the top. Some people are on the bottom. Some people are positioned to receive an inheritance of generational wealth. Other people are just barely scraping by and trying to figure out how to provide for their family. And every 50 years, there's a giant reset button. The horn blast. And if you owed somebody money, your debt was canceled. If you were a slave, you were emancipated. If you'd been evicted from your home, you get to move back in. It was a radical idea. Um, this is the kind of idea that would affect every part of life, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be like, yeah, one year out of every 50, things are a little weird. It's like, this would change everything. This would change the way that you thought about work and money. This would change the way you think about time and family. It's a radical idea. And who would come up with an idea like this? Apparently, God would. Jubilee was God's idea, and it's just one of the ways that he called his people to live in a radically different way amongst the nations. A whole different way of being. Where their God isn't the dollar, isn't the market, isn't the economy, isn't the accumulation of wealth or power or anything like that, but their God is the creator, the one who made it all and owns it all and generously shares it all with his children. So God gives this invitation, this calendar law, as a gift. And the gift is, I want you to live really well as my people here on earth. I want you to live as an embassy of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. A foretaste of the way things are supposed to be. So where their sins they're forgiven. Where there's debts, they're canceled. It's a place where everybody has everything they need. Um, I know some of you guys love board games. I don't. And uh, <laughs> I like a few like word and party games. But if we're talking about any kind of games that take like three hours and you have to be a wizard or a Nazi or something like that, like I'm out. 
Um, so if you're ever having a, a game night and think, we should invite Pastor Pete, I would appreciate it if you didn't. Um, <laughs> everybody would have a better time. I guarantee that. Um, but there's a few, you know, simple card games and that sort of thing that our family likes to play, um, code names and apples to apples, that kind of stuff. And when Emma and Mo and Milo were little, uh, we played a lot of these simple card games that you remember, like Uno and Go Fish and Old Maid, um, that sort of thing. And the thing about these card games is that you usually start by shuffling the deck, and then you deal out all the cards, and then you play the game, and then after a while, someone loses or wins, and then that round is over, and then everybody turns in all their cards, you reshuffle the deck, you redeal, and you play again. It's this kind of simple little rhythm. Now imagine one night I'm sitting down with my family around the card table, and I say, okay, kids, here's what we're going to do. Instead of um, playing like we normally do, what we're going to start doing now is wherever we ended the game last time, that's where we're going to start this time. So however many cards you had last time, that's how many cards you get now. And um, whatever place you were in last time we played, that's the place you're in now. Which means that some people are going to be doing really well and have a lot of cards and be in the lead. And other people may not have any cards at all and kind of just have to sit there uh, and watch. Now, chances are, if I'm initiating this new way of playing cards, it's probably because I have a pretty good stack from last time, right? Um, that's just kind of how <laughs> these things tend to work. That would be a whole different way of playing the game. That's not how we play these games. We don't start off where we ended last time. Everything is reshuffled, redealt, reset when we begin. And I think that's something like that is what God has in mind when he initiates this year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. In his vision for a flourishing people, there is such thing as some people having too much. His vision is that everyone gets to play. And no matter how well things are set up at the beginning, if the game just goes and goes and goes, and every time we don't stop and reshuffle, but we just keep playing, then eventually you're going to have a small group of people who have it all, and you're going to have a group of people that don't even get to enjoy the game. So God says, I want a community where everybody can play. That's the vision in Leviticus 25. It's a radical idea. Now, let's fast forward about 900 years from the giving of the law. And what we have now is that the Hebrew people have stopped this practice of Jubilee. Now, uh, we don't know exactly when they stopped, but most likely it wasn't a decision made by those who, were, uh, who owed a lot of money. Most likely it wasn't a decision made by the slaves or by those who had been evicted. It was most likely the decision to stop Jubilee was most likely made by those on top because things were going pretty well for them and Jubilee would mess everything up. And so as, uh, as we said, the, the nation of Israel um, had this place that God had called them to but they have now been exiled from that place. They have been essentially being held captive as prisoners of war in the land of Babylon. And God raises up a series of prophets. 
these guys who come to proclaim God's word to God's people and to call them back to God, back to repentance, and to prepare them for what God is going to do. And one of the things that the prophets declared to the people during exile is that this exile, this judgment that you are experiencing has come upon you because you've stopped living according to the ways of God, including because you've stopped practicing jubilee. Now you're just going with the flow of the world and living like everyone else. There's nothing distinct amongst, uh, amongst you when it comes to money and work and people and relationships and property you've blended in to the rest of society. And God says, so in my grace, I'm going to allow you to be exiled so that we can start another reset on this thing. One of the prophets that God sends is a guy by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies that one day this servant of God, servant with a capital S, this servant of God would show up and he would bring about the restoration of God's calendar, including the restoration of Jubilee. So listen to the Isaiah the prophet's words. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now it starts sounding kind of familiar, right? And that phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, is a specific reference to the year of Jubilee. It's not a year of the Lord's favor, it's the year of the Lord's favor. Isaiah says that God is going to send a servant who is going to reinstate the year of Jubilee. And so 900 years after the giving of the law, Isaiah prophesies that the day is coming soon when all debts will be canceled, all slaves will be freed, all land will be returned. Now here's what's interesting. Israel is in exile in Babylon when this word is given. And so all of the sudden, the Israelites who had abandoned the practice of Jubilee have found themselves as the very ones who need it the most. They are now living as prisoners of war, essentially as slaves exiled from their land. And God says, hang tight, my kids. You may have forgotten about me, but I haven't forgotten about you. I'm sending my servant, and he's going to push reset. And I'm going to set you free from slavery, and I'm going to bring you home to our family land. God says, I'm going to reshuffle the deck, and everything is going to be made right again. Now, in the short term, this promise of God is fulfilled as a remnant of Israel is taken back to the land. And they begin to rebuild their temple. This story is told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. That there is a sense in which Jubilee is reestablished. But ultimately, this promise has yet to been, be fulfilled for these people. So if we fast forward from the time of Isaiah, another 600 years, we end up in the Gospel of Luke. 
The Hebrew people once again. First it was slaves in Egypt, then it's exiles in Babylon, and now they are in their land, but they're living under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so they're in the right place, but they're not free to live the life that God has chosen for them. And so they once again find themselves waiting and hoping for God to send the capital S servant, the one who would reenact Jubilee. And right around this time is when Jesus shows up. In the first part of Luke's gospel, Jesus is baptized. And then he goes out into the wilderness. And then he comes back full of the Holy Spirit. And in Luke's gospel, his public ministry is launched in his hometown of Nazareth. And so in the scripture for this morning, Luke 4 The scripture reading in the synagogue that day was Isaiah 61. And Jesus, essentially as the rabbi that was on site that morning, he gets up, unrolls the scroll, he reads this passage, Isaiah chapter 61. And then as the rabbi, he's expected to share some thoughts, to give some interpretation, to preach a sermon, so to speak. And that's exactly what he does in a way that nobody would have expected. Those last two verses again, Luke chapter four. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, this scripture today is fulfilled in your hearing. He drops the mic. And goes and sits down. An eight-word sermon. This deep story of pain and slavery and oppression and exile. These people that are suffering under Roman occupation, longing for God's capital S servant to come and to blow the ram's horn. Jesus doesn't get up and give a sermon about how one day that's going to happen, so hang in there, people of God. He gets up and essentially says, that day is today. The day that Isaiah prophesied about, that day is today. The day has come. This begins the year of Jubilee. And not only is he saying that Jubilee begins, but by saying fulfilled in your hearing through his mouth, Jesus is claiming that he is the sent one of God, the capital S servant that has come, anointed by the spirit of God to proclaim the Lord's favor. So this is Jesus' inaugural speech as he launches his campaign for the kingdom of heaven to touch down on the kingdom of earth, he leads with his economic policy. He leads by saying, when I'm king, this is the way things are going to be. It's this thing called jubilee. Again, this is a radical concept. And if you're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what following Jesus is all about, then paying attention to the first words he speaks in his ministry would be a good idea. And this is what Luke gives us. 
the first thing he says is that we're reenacting Jubilee. It's a radical concept, so much so that if we even tried to imagine how that would work in our day and age, I have no idea, right? It would be chaos, wouldn't it? If we canceled all debts, canceled all loans, canceled all the contracts, who would we even give land back to? Do we go back 50 years or 100 years? Do we go back to indigenous? Like, we wouldn't even know where to begin. That's how radical this idea is. But I want to make sure that we know when Jesus gets up and declares this, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's not spiritualizing this idea and saying it just has to do with our own personal morality or spirituality. He is speaking in terms of the real world, so to speak. And so, real quick, before all you like democratic socialists get all pumped and say Jesus is one of us, and then before all you Republican capitalists want to dismiss this whole thing entirely, I just want to remind you, Jesus' kingdom vision does not fit nicely into any of our boxes. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is for this world, but it's not of this world. And everything that Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is an announcement of the enactment of the kingdom of God on earth, restoring things to the way they ought to be. And we are so far from that that I can't even, we can't even figure out what it would look like to live by that vision here and now. But here Jesus comes. And all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets had foretold this coming kingdom, a kingdom marked by justice and peace and mercy, a kingdom where sins are forgiven and transgressions are pardoned, a kingdom where violence is abolished and peace prevailed. It would be a kingdom where the strong no longer exploited the weak, a kingdom of flourishing where, people, where, where there will be no more suffering, a kingdom of healing and hope where humanity will thrive, a kingdom of new creation where death is finally overcome by resurrection. That's the kingdom that's promised, where the glory of the Lord covers the earth, the deck is reshuffled, and life begins again. So Jesus shows up and he declares that he himself is that servant and that he is bringing about the year of Jubilee. A couple more places real quick. After Jesus has come and announced the, the year of the Lord's favor, after his death and resurrection and ascension, after the birth of the church in the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul would get up later and look back at these ancient Hebrew prophecies and realize that ultimately they were all pointing to Christ. I love how he puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, thinking back of God's promises of old. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. Look at these two words Paul uses to proclaim and describe life in the kingdom of God. Yes in Amen. All of God's promises to his people, they are yes in Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment 
of every one of God's promises. And I would say even more deeply, he is the answer to every one of our questions. Because there's times where we have some questions for God. Does God still love us? Does God still care about me? Is God with us? Has God remembered me? Paul says, Jesus is the yes to every one of these questions, every one of the Father's promises. So here's the idea. Jesus, when he shows up and preaches this eight-word sermon, he's saying that Jubilee is now here, but it's no longer a year. Jubilee is a person. Jubilee has come. It's not once every 50 years. It is the new reality. Jubilee has come to us, is with us, is among us, and is all around us. You see how this is lived out in Jesus' life and ministry. Think about the miracles. Last week, Sean preached on the miracle of Jesus transforming the water into wine. When Jesus does miracles, he's not doing cool magic tricks to woo a crowd. When Jesus does a miracle, he's performing a sign of the kingdom. He's giving a sneak peek, the trailer, if you will, of the coming show. This is what things are going to be like. One of my favorite books as a kid was called The Chocolate Touch. I don't know if you remember that. This little kid named John who loved chocolate so much that he makes a wish that everything could be made out of chocolate because that would be amazing. And one day, magically, his wish comes true and everything that he touches turns into chocolate. Um, I didn't realize at the time it was just a retelling of the Midas story. Uh, Turns out the kid's name is John Midas. But um, (laughs) Jesus has the jubilee touch. That everything he touches is liberated, set free, restored, healed, turned right side up. Where there's sin, he forgives it. Think about his ministry, his life. Where there's sickness, he heals it. Where there's injustice, he overthrows it. Where there's shame, he covers it. And where there's death, he resurrects it. Jesus isn't doing magic tricks. He's performing signs of the kingdom. This is what happens when somebody with the jubilee touch shows up in our broken world. Our final passage in Revelation chapter 11. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, the first chunk is letters to the seven churches. And then the next chunk is the signs of the seven seals. And then the next chunk is this vision of the seven angels and the seven trumpets. Are you noticing a theme? The author couldn't make it any clearer in this apocalyptic vision that's given to John. There's this picture over and over, seven, 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 this number of completion, this callback to Eden, this invitation to life as Sabbath. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, we get to the last angel in this vision. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven 
which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The story ends where it began. The kingdom of God has come to earth. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are now one in the same. Things are as they ought to be. Eden is restored. Jubilee isn't a year. Jubilee is reality. And so when Paul says all of God's promises are yes in Christ, he, go, he, he goes back and he says, and the word of the church in response to the yes of Christ is simply Amen. Amen, meaning let it be, or so be it. Yes. What does it look like for us to live as visitors from the future? What does it look like to live here and now as citizens of heaven? What does it look like for us to be people of Jubilee? When it comes to things like economic policy and all that, I don't know, but Jesus says yes, and I say amen. But I do know on a daily basis, when I have an opportunity to get even or to settle the score or to get revenge on somebody, Jubilee would say I forgive. When I have an opportunity to be, to be self-interested, to be greedy, to accumulate, to take from others for myself, Jubilee would say there's a new kingdom. It's not how it goes. When someone says, oh, they're going to get what they deserve, Jubilee would say, I don't know what that means. So as the church, we live as visitors from the future. We live as a Jubilee people. We live as those who often, who offer pardon and peace and generosity. And we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Walking with Jesus, listening to him proclaim that there's a new kingdom at hand. And the invitation that he gives is to repent, to turn from your sin, turn from your greed, turn from your love of wealth, from your exploitation of others. Turn from bitterness, turn from hatred, and repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Linda's going to come, lead us to the table where we will celebrate one of the beautiful kingdom feasts together. <laughs>